0: Line of the coffee shop. I don't know if it's real or fake, but it says Shadrach, Meshach, and a bean to go get it. Correct. Like if I had a coffee shop, that would be a top contender. Okay. But, so this is that's where we're going. We're talking about the fiery furnace, right? The fiery furnace retold. And here's the thing: we know this story, right? It's told to us as kids. There's a VeggieTales episode on it, and we have this image of the flannel graph and the four people in the fire. And it's interesting because. Most of us know this story because we heard it in children's church or vacation Bible school or somewhere along the way. But the truth is, that's about the only experience we have. it. It's not one that's taught much. I have been te- in some form of teaching ministry for like 12 years. I graduated in 2000. Yeah, 12 years, 10 years. And uh, never have I taught on this passage. So I enjoy diving into it. And, and one of the challenges is, the, and the reason it's not taught on us, because we feel like we know it, Like right? We know this story. We know that Shadrach and Abednego, they stand up for their faith, and they're thrown in the furnace, and God saves them. They walk out of the furnace, right? It starts with, with King Nebuchadnezzar, and he has this, this huge statue built that's nine feet, 90 feet tall. It's like eight stories, right? Has this huge statue built, and he gathers all these official people. He gathers everybody in the city to come in and to bow down and worship this statue, but our Boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow down. They refuse to worship this statue that King Neb has built. All right, we're going to use abbreviations. Okay, just stay with me. All right, so they refuse to bow down. He gets mad. He keeps his promise because he says, If you don't bow down, we're going to throw you in the fire. He keeps his promise. He throws them in the fire. Then when he looks in, he's shocked because he doesn't see three people. First off, he should see nobody. As hot as it is, they should be obliterated immediately, right? But, but he sees four people and he calls in and they come out of the fire. And As they come out of the fire, we see that the fire was hot enough to burn their ropes off their hands, but it didn't singe a hair or burn their clothes or even have the smell of smoke on them. And they come out and they're saved. So you're teaching this to our kids and we say, what's the moral of this story? When asked to deny your faith, refuse, and God will save you. But what happens when he doesn't? What happens when we live a faithful life, when we do the things that scripture teaches us, when we live a life that looks like Jesus, but we still enter into suffering, and we still have the worst possible outcome? What happens when God doesn't seem to rescue us? June 17, 2015, a white supremacist walked into a Bible study at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, and in the middle of that Bible study, he opened fire, killing nine people because they were black and because they were Christian. On November fifth, two 2017, a young man entered First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas methodically walking the aisles, killing six, 26 people and injuring 22 others. We don't have a manifesto from him, so we don't know why he did it, but he does have a history of uh, being vocally anti-religious. He it was constantly posting about atheism online. He often tried to preach this atheism. He described people who believed in God as stupid, and he expressed an interest in church shootings. He walked in, and he took their life because they were at church. Now, these individuals, they weren't given a chance to stand up for their faith. They were ambushed because they were attending church. But what about the ones who were? What about the ones who had their own personal Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment before King Nebuchadnezzar, where they were asked to renounce their faith, but they did not? In January of 2015, you may remember a video was released. It had 20 Egyptian and one Gananian, I'll probably mispronounce that, Christians, and they were lined up on a beach with bags over their heads, and they were asked to renounce their faith on video. Each one refused, and each one was horrifically executed. When a father of one of these victims was interviewed, he said this, I wanted to see Milad come back from Libya on his feet after his struggle and hard work to earn a living and a harsh life abroad. But thanks be to God, he died a hero. He did not beg anyone to spare his life, and he and his brothers, the martyrs, did not abandon their faith or their homeland. I read a story this week of a girl in Uganda at the age of 13 years old. She received Christ and decided to follow Jesus. Her Muslim father locked her in a closet, refusing to give her food or water for over six months. She survived on food slipped under the door by her brother. The fiery furnace is a great story, but when we reduce it to a quick, be bold in your faith and you won't suffer, we have missed the point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yes, they were delivered out of the fire, but they were prepared to lose their life in it. We know the end of the story. We know that they were delivered. But when they're there before the king, they don't know the outcome. In fact, they they have seen many of their brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, their people persecuted, killed before their eyes. They know that the king will kill them and they have seen people not be rescued. And we read these powerful verses, and we'll come back to over and over again in Daniel 3. This is 17 through 18, and this is them responding to the king. They says, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from this furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. They did not know they were going to be rescued, but they have what I'm calling a furnace faith that allows them to stand boldly for Christ and walk into suffering and persecution because of the faith they have in God. Many of us know the verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. It's uh, what I would call a coffee mug verse, right? It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to, not, to give you a future and a hope. This verse is often seen on t-shirts, bumper stickers, um, influencers like to put it in their social media bios, right? It's everywhere because this is a verse of hope. This is a powerful verse that says, if I'm going through something bad, I know that God has a bright future for me. And I want to tread carefully because I do believe that God has a future of hope-filled and well-being for you. But that future does not mean that it does not exclude suffering. Because see, if we take that verse that people have ripped out of context and we place it back into where it belongs in the book of Jeremiah, we get not just verse 11, but we get Jeremiah 29.10 which says, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years, now remember, if you probably know the story, you've heard the words of Jesus, you should forgive your neighbor 70 times seven. Okay, this isn't a literal 70. This is a time of completion. So it could be literal, we'll unpack that, but most likely this is just saying when God has completed his sovereign plan. So we're talking not 70 years, but generations and generations of of God's people. So it says, when the Lord says, when the 70 years for Babylon are completed, Complete. I will attend to you, and I will confirm my promise concerning you and restore you to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, but to give you a future and a hope. So for 70 years, for generations and generations, God's people will be forced into exile. And that's where they have this promise of a future-filled with hope and well-being. It's in the midst of suffering. It's in the midst of hardship. Do you know what exile was? Exile was forced deportation. The people of God ripped from their homes. Some were separated from their families forever, taken out of their homeland and forced to live in Babylon. They lost their temple. It was destroyed before them. The place where they worship, the center for their community, the center for their cultural and religious life, destroyed. No longer can they go there and worship the God they love. No longer can they go there and worship the God that created them. Their whole way of life was surrounded around this temple, and it is gone. They were forced to adapt. They were forced to be assimilated into this Babylonian culture. The elite, the attractive, and the skilled were plucked from God's people and they were groomed for political office in Babylon. This was a tool for erasing the cultural heritage of God's people. They wanted it to seem as if they never existed because they were going to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. So they would force them to learn the way of life, the language, and the culture of Babylon. And many suffered abuse, persecution, and other forms of suffering. So yes, Jeremiah 29, 11 is a hope of salvation and restoration. But that hope will not be experienced by generations of people. There are generations that will die in exile and never see that promise come to be. A teenager, if we take the 70 years literally, a teenager who is taken during exile will not know what it's like to worship in the temple like their parents until they are over 80 years old. Jeremiah 29.11 is not a verse to write on your mirror in hopes that you'll get that raise or get a new job or finally land that relationship. It's not a hope for a cushy life. Jeremiah 29.11 is a verse that we should be memorized so that you can pray it over and over and over again as you are looking forward to the glory of heaven, as you run the race laid before you, as you navigate Jeremiah 29.10, as you navigate exile. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, what does this have to do with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What does it have to do with the fiery furnace? Well, the king that took the Israelites into exile was King Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a story that takes place during Jeremiah 10, during the 70 years of exile. That passage in Jeremiah was written to them. Those were verses that they held on to, that they lived their life by as they navigated what it was like to experience all those things in exile. King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream And he doesn't know how to interpret it. So Daniel interprets it for him. Daniel then gets placed into one of the king's elite men and he puts a word in for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then they are selected to be a part of these elite, attractive, skilled craftsmen to be the ones that are groomed for political office. And that's where we find the story. That is what they are doing. So we see that when King Nebuchadnezzar has this statue built, what some say reflects the statue in his dream, that he has this statue built and he wants everybody to come in and worship. So when we see in verses two and three that he calls all of these officials in these officials is where we find Shadrach Meshach and Abednego it says this in verse 2 king and pay attention to the list okay he says the the writer says these lists over and over again to draw the reader in and and wants us to see that it's everybody it's all it's all inclusive so this is what it says King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps the prefects the governors the advisors the treasurers the judges the magistrates and all the rulers of all the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of all the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. They stood before the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Did you know he set up a statue? (laughs) <laughs> it's, a, it's all of this writing to draw the reader in it to say look this is every governing official all of these people who had gained some kind of power and influence all these people who have been groomed or grew up in babylon who now hold these positions of power these are all the elite all of these people over all of this kingdom have been gathered here to hear the king's command to bow down and worship this idol so we have our voice, and they have now begun to listen and serve King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, why are they doing something like that? Like, Babylon is the bad guy. But now we know that because of the story and culture that they have actually grown up and they are working for the betterment of Babylon. They are governing officials. They are over a province. They have power. They are trying to influence and build a better Babylon. They're trying to make Babylon great. I'm not going to make that joke. Okay, so... It sounds like they've neglected their people. It sounds like they've neglected their faith. It sounds like they've decided they're going to shoot for the comfortable, cushy life of public office. But when we look at that, we think, why would they do something like that? Well, let's go back to the text they were reading, Jeremiah 29, right? If we go back and we look at verses 5 through 7, this time we see that God commands them while in exile to build houses And live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, find wives for yourselves, have your sons and daughters find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive." God commands the Israelites who have been forced into exile to work for the betterment of the city they have been deported to. Even though they are being mistreated, even though they are suffering, even though there's an attempt to erase their heritage, even though they are being persecuted, they are told to multiply and seek the well-being of the city. Why would God tell them to do something like that? Well, it's because of verse 10. We just read. When the 70 years are complete, God will attend to them and he will confirm his promise concerning them to restore them to this place. One day God will redeem them. So now, while they are in exile, They are to love the city they are in. They are to pray for it, to work for it, to seek its well-being. Right now, yes, it is damaged. damaged. Right now, yes, it is full of evil. Yes, it is full of darkness. Right now, it seems dire. But one day, God's people will be restored. One day, the darkness will be driven out. And one day, all will be made right in Babylon. Do you see it? Do you see the picture? One day, there will come a point when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will face the furnace. They know that, that, we know that's coming. And we know that they are able to face it with a furnace like faith. But the reason they are able to boldly face almost certain death is because they know God is faithful. They know He will fulfill His promise to redeem and restore even in death. Here's the point. As followers of Jesus Christ, you too are in exile right now. You live in a fallen world. We see its brokenness every day. We see how We see it in how humans treat each other. We see it in how people in power abuse that power. We see it in how our homeless and immigrant friends are treated. We see it in how certain societal systems work to keep people oppressed. We see it in how many of the companies we work for and how they are ran. We see it in the cancer diagnosis. We see it in the car accidents. We see it in the loss of the loved one. Everywhere we look, we realize that this world is not how it was designed to be. It has fallen and it has cursed. And as we walk boldly with Christ, there will be times of suffering. This is one of the things that, that makes Christianity stand apart. Because in other religions of the world, if you suffer, it's because you, were had, you did something bad in a previous life or because you've done something bad now. But in Christianity, if you were to live a perfect, sinless life, like, I don't know, Jesus, you are still guaranteed suffering. As believers, we can face that suffering head-on with a furnace-like faith because we know that one day... Jesus will return. One day, all enemies will be made his footstool. All brokenness will be destroyed. Eden will be restored. And we can hold on to that future hope, which allows us to face the bullies of our day with strength and dignity. We can stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because we know God is faithful. And even in suffering and even in death, we can hold on to the promise that one day, Jesus will return and he will make all things right. Once the king had gathered all these important people, a.k.a. everybody, he gives them this command. People of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, sithra, hire, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music. You are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall and worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, cither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell and worshipped the gold statue that the king had set up. Here's some background. Many Babylon was full of many different people groups and many, many different religious religions. They all worshiped different gods. And King Babylon didn't want to cause a ruckus. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon didn't want to cause a ruckus. So everybody got to have their own God. You were they they were known for their pluralist gods. Everywhere you look, there was a different god. A god for the crops, a god for fertility, a god for for well-being, a god for suffering. There's gods everywhere for all these different religions. And the king was fine with that. You can have your god, but I need you to keep your god private. See, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to unify the people, so he decided to add a god on top of all of these. And that god, believe it or not, with all humility, was himself. He saw himself as a God, and he never commanded that the people stop worshiping their individual gods privately. He just wanted to make sure that everyone worshiped him publicly. It was an attempt to privatize faith and change the identity of all these people groups. They no longer would be the people of Yahweh or whatever God they served. They would be the people of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was an attempt to unify his kingdom. Spoiler alert, many did not listen. Many did not bow, including Daniel, see the story of the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had assimilated into this culture. They they were a part of families. They had adapted the Babylonian way of life. They had climbed the ladder. They were public officials, but they refused to let Babylon be their identity. They refused to let their faith be private. They didn't want it to be contained to one day a week or a quiet time of prayer when no one was looking. They refused to let the king, the promise of a cushy life or the polytheistic worldview, penetrate their hearts. No matter how deep their lives got into the Babylonian culture, it never defined them. They were in the city and they were for the city, but they were never of the city. As they were concerned, they, would, they were concerned that they would be in exile forever. They knew that God would one day restore them. So they didn't, they worked for the betterment of the city. They were in it, but they weren't of it. You could say they were in the world of Babylon, but not of the world of Babylon. Again, do you see it? As believers, you and I are in exile. But like our trio, we are not called to sit idly waiting for Jesus to come back as the promise we talked about earlier. No, we are supposed to get in and get our hands dirty, making the world around us a better place. We are a light on the hill. We are the salt of the earth. We are called to bring God's future promise into a current reality. We do this through prayer and action. We pray that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We get out of our comfort zones. We build a better community. When the Holy Spirit gives you a dream or a passion or a vision, you don't wait around for someone else to realize that dream. You get started. You jump in and begin the work. Maybe this means getting involved in city council or local politics or joining a a some kind of shelter or a volunteer opportunity. It's all a chance for us to get off of our tushies in a cushy life and work for the betterment of our city. But this does not mean that we privatize our faith. In the midst of seeking the betterment of our world around us, we must understand that the world around us does not define us. And there will be times when you have to stand up for your faith and stand up for what's right, even if it brings you trouble. Your values are not set by the culture, your identity is not set by the country, and your worldview is not set by the friends or the news that you consume. All of these things, every aspect of your life is to be focused on Christ. His word sets our value system. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail. You've probably heard of it. You may have read parts of it in school. It's a famous letter. In the letter, he references this this story he references Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as a rallying cry to stand up for what's right, to protest peacefully, and to break unjust laws openly. To live in a bold defiance, but not to sin. To break the law and accept the punishment without fighting back. To break unjust laws and accept the punishment without fighting back. This was meant, this is what it means to be in the world and not of it. You seek the betterment of your community, even if it means breaking wrong laws and facing the consequences. I can't go into this whole illustration because it's getting long, but I, I love the Lord of the Rings, right? Yes. And Lord of the Rings, one of the Tolkien's big points, of, uh, in, I read a, a, an essay that compared Lord of the Rings with Game of Thrones, okay? Oh, okay. And Game of Thrones is, you know, you win, you get whatever power by whatever means necessary. So you can do evil, you do what it takes to win. And in Game of Thrones, I haven't actually seen it, but it, it, everybody dies. I mean, I I remember all the culture, everybody getting all up in arms because they have kingdoms that they root for or whatever, and then that kingdom dies. Because when you, when you win at whatever cost, you actually lose. Compared to Lord of the Rings, where you have... Noble people who have the opportunity to pick up the, the ring and defeat evil with evil's power, but they refuse to fight with the same weapon that evil fights with this is what it means to be in the world but not of it this is what shadrach meshach and abednego are doing they are serving and doing what they can to better babylon but they are not fighting with babylon's rules so when they are told to bow down they refuse to bow down because they do not worship they do not let babylon define their identity they are defined by the god they serve next year is a presidential election and we have a chance to really apply this. The devil will be scheming and, dis- and dis- causing destruction and division in families and communities everywhere. It's important that we are informed and we use discernment in politics. But it's also important that your allegiance doesn't lie with an elephant or a donkey, but it lies with the Lamb of God. Paul teaches us that we're to be in the world, but not of it. And long before Paul wrote those words, the truth was lived out in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were able to faithfully face the furnace because they were not living by Babylon's rules. So how does the story finish out? Verse 8 says this, some chandelines, these are uh, other officials. They took the occasion to come forward and snitch, I mean, accuse the Jews. You see, there was all, we, we get this picture of all these officials. So we know that King Nebuchadnezzar had no way of enforcing all these rules and keeping all, all the musical instruments. This is it saying anytime you hear music, anytime there's a chance to worship, you are to worship? the statue. There's no way King Nebuchadnezzar could have made sure that everybody was following all of these rules all at once. And there were many that weren't. But then there were some others who saw the opportunity to climb the ladder, not because of their own skill, but by removing the competition. So they go to the king And they say, "May the king live forever." You are the king. Have issued you the king have issued this decree that whoever hears the sound of the horn, flute, cither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of musical instrument must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They did not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set before them. See? They snitched on them. And guess what? It worked. The king was furious. It says that then he was furious and raged, King Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now... If you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn flute sither lyre harp drum and every kind of music you, you got to see it I mean they say it over and over again right I want you to fall down and worship the statue I made but if you do not worship it you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire and who is the and who is the god who can rescue you from my power you see we know now that that king Nebuchadnezzar has invested in them right he has poured poured resources into these guys raising them up grooming them for this position he wants to give them every chance they can like he's hoping that you know maybe they thought they could get away with it but now they've been told so they're before the king maybe now they'll actually bow down and besides look at my power who can refuse who can save you from all of my power now is your chance to bow down and how do they respond if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And, if he, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not, even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Whew. Those are some big words. You got a narcissistic, self-centered king who sees himself as a god, and he has just put, as the, the teenagers say, been put on blast. Okay, he, he has been showed up in front of everybody, and you can guess. Not only does he get a, a defensive, but he raises up in anger and fury, and filled with this rage, he does. He he's so reckless, he even causes the death of not not the ones who were attended and die, but several guards standing nearby. The story continues, he was filled with rage. The expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave the orders to heat the fiery furnace seven times hotter than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army, the best soldiers in his army, to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers and robes and head coverings and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Seems like all hope is lost. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called out to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. He recognizes something there. Come out. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, when the, here we go, all the satraps, prefects, governors, the kings, and the king's advisors gathered around them, they saw that the fire had no effects on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and the, there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent an angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve and worship any god except their own. So you think, man, King Nebuchadnezzar is about to get saved. We're we're, we're excited about what's happening. And then we realize everything is a power move with him. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people of any nation or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and his house made a garbage dump. I I don't think he gets it. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this than the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is why it's a children's story. Kids. If you don't follow Jesus, we're going to tear you from limb to limb. No, I'm sorry. We don't teach that. Okay. (laughs) We see the power in the story here, though, right? We see that they did not know they would be rescued. But even not knowing what the outcome would be, they were ready and willing to enter into the furnace. They were ready and willing to enter into the suffering set before them. Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were rescued. But what I want us to see in closing here is that they were not rescued from the fire. They were rescued through it. As they entered the fire, they were not alone. It says, one appearing as the sons of God was with them. Three men went in. A fourth one was seen, and that fourth one was all-inspiring, angelic, mighty, and glorious. It was a human form of the God they served. Now, many scholars call this, ready for a big word, theophany. A theophany is God in human form in the Old Testament. Now, we know because of the New Testament who God in human form is. This is Jesus. It's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus is a part of the Trinity and has been there from the beginning. We learn in the New Testament that creation was all of creation was created through him. And now we have appearance of him in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 1 Peter 4 12 says this. Dear friends, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Suffering is not unusual. You will face it. But what you need to know from this story, and as it is unfolded and talked about into the New Testament, is that you do not face the fire alone. God stepped down out of heaven. He put on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. And Jesus suffered as we suffer. He was tempted and tried as we are tempted, yet he was without sin. In the garden, we see him sweating in utter agony. He is sweating drops of blood over the impending doom that he knows is coming. We see him endure the humiliation and the torment of the cross. Why? Because he loved you so much, he could not stand to see how evil prevailed. He could not see, stand to see how sin was wreaking havoc on his creation. So he sat into Motion to plan to redeem and restore all of creation so when you suffer when you face the difficulty that may come before you you do not suffer alone if we continue to read that passage in peter it says dear friends do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you instead rejoice As you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed in the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name you do not enter the suffering alone the truth is we do have a bit of a cushy life here in the west chances are it could happen but chances are most of us in this room will not ever be in a situation where we're lined up on a beach with a bag over our head asked to renounce our faith chances are you won't be locked in a closet by your father because you follow jesus but it could happen there could come a time where you're asked to renounce your faith. There could be a time where you are lose your job because you stand up for what's right. There could be a time where you find yourself arrested or thrown in jail because you break a law that you know is unjust. The truth is we are called to not be in the world but not to be of we're called to be in the world but not of the world. And when we do that, we lean on Christ and he gives us the ability to have the faith that can face the furnace. It's not something you do on your own. It's something that only comes through the power of God in your life. It is a work of grace in us. So as we sing this morning, whenever you face whatever suffering that is before you, hold on to hope because there is another in the fire. When you face the hardest situation of your life, hold on to hope because there is another in the fire. When you are depressed and as low as you have ever been and you just wish that you might as well be dead, hold on to hope because there is another in the fire. When the world around you is crumbling, hold on to hope because there is another in the fire. We are called to be in our city but not of it. We are called to live on the lean on the promises of Jesus return and his redeeming and restoring of our world. And when you face a fiery ordeal head on, never surrender your identity because you are found in Christ. You will suffer, but you will not suffer alone. Let's pray.